Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broader reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, academic associate at the Sainsbury Institute, Daiwa scholar and archaeology PhD student at the University of Cambridge, researching language and interpretation at Japanese war heritage sites. Today we're joined by Daniel Milne, senior lecturer at Kyoto University's Institute for Liberal Arts and Sciences, to discuss what happens when we memorialize past conflicts through the Kyoto Buddhist temple, Gyozen Kanon. Daniel and I explore how the meaning of monuments to war dead change over time and compare yours and Cannon's approach with that of the National War Memorial site of Yasukuni Shrine. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good evening, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Good evening. Thanks for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? So basically, um, I'm a product of general humanities sort of background. Uh, in sociology, politics, international relations, literature, colonial studies, and really mainly tourism, I guess, is where I place myself now. But yeah, I, I cover a bit of, bit of ground with my research. Generally, when I'm asked, well, you know, what sort of research do you do? I say, I'm in critical tourism studies that's focused on Japan. So in my early PhD days, this involved Orientalism, the history of foreign tourism to Japan. So looking through that sorry, sort of uh, colonial theory perspectives and the relationships between war and tourism, something that I've done more recently, as well as uh, war-related sites, say in Kyoto and how it's presented in media. So Probably in the last four years or so, my work, and especially in the last three years since COVID, I've switched to focus primarily on Kyoto and two particular sites and the history of those sites. So I guess I've become more of a historian than a sociologist now. Those two sites of yours in Kanon, which we'll talk about today, and Mimizuka, which is another site I know that you've also done research about. These I've connected in my other research projects, my larger research projects, one of which is focused on POWs. So Gyozen Kanon is connected to POW uh, memorialization and another on um, modern Kyoto. Looking at how I got here, you know, how I've arrived here, I should probably say firstly that I'm Australian. I've been here now for 15 years or so, so I've probably lost a bit of my Australian accent, but um, I am Australian. I was born in England, and ever since I've left my hometown in country Victoria in Australia, sort of followed my interests, been lucky enough to be able to follow those interests, which have led me um, quite unexpectedly, really, because I never really had much of an interest in Japan, but it's led me to where I am today. So I did uh, my undergraduate studies at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and there I was really excited about looking at politics and power in sort of unusual places. So um, this is one thing that I do with tourism studies now. And while I was actually, while I was a 
note taker for a visually impaired person. I took a class, or the, the guy took a class, and I happened to meet someone who was teaching colonial studies. The teacher there was actually related to um, to Gandhi as well, so that was very sort of exciting for me. Wow. Um, and that introduced me to ways of you know thinking about how people in the West, which includes Australia for me, even though it's just as far east as Japan, how we imagine people in the East and how we imagine people in other cultures. I then applied for jobs fairly randomly and I found some work teaching English in Japan. I was asked, you know, where I'd like to be based and I flicked through a Lonely Planet guide and I found this place called Kyoto, which I'd never really known anything about apart from the climate change protocol. Didn't know anything about the place, but it looked good. So I said, um, I'd like to go here if possible. At that time, I planned on saving all this money in Japan and then moving to Guatemala where I was going to study Spanish, which my Lonely Planet guide also told me was a great place to be too. Um, that has never eventuated, sadly. Um, ironically, my research started uh, at Kyoto University a few years later, about three years later. It started on exactly this topic, how guidebooks frame our knowledge of places and people through an Orientalist gaze. And for me, because I was in Japan, I was in Kyoto, which, as we know, is a big city of tourism, was how we've seen, how these places have been seen over time. I eventually finished my master's and PhD on this topic at Kyoto University. And when, as part of that, I looked at US Army guides to Japan, which were written during the war and written during the occupation, that got me interested in the relationships between tourism and war and took me in that direction. So in 2009, I co-edited a journal special with a good friend, Andrew Elliott, in Japan Review. And this, I'm really still very happy with this publication. It's, it's available online. It's open source, so you can get access to it for free and brings together some of the best researchers in the field in, from Japan and abroad. So check it out if you can. I then, in 2020, I received a Japanese government a grant to do research about POWs and POW-related heritage sites in Japan, Southeast Asia, and Australia. But then COVID got in the way of my fieldwork plan, so I focused more on Kyoto and what's in my backyard. These were places that I'd started research on a couple of years back and really um, have developed that research over the last three years or so. So, yeah, I might leave it there, my, my introduction. So before we get into the details of your research, you and a team of researchers have recently published a special issue of the Asia-Pacific Journal's Japan Focus on re-examining Asia-Pacific war memories, grief, narratives, and memorials. Could you give us an overview of the topics tackled in this issue? So, yeah, that project I started... Just as we got into COVID, the COVID lockdowns, um, I wanted to connect with some other researchers, uh, based mainly based in Kyoto University or around me here. So we co-edited this special. It's twelve papers, and it's split into three parts. 
on memory, memorials, personal narratives, commemoration of the Asia-Pacific War. Um, it's primarily focused on Japan, but there's some other um, areas of the world we cover too. So part one of that is about cemeteries and buried bodies and how they can complicate dominant narratives of war memorialization. So um, one of the papers looks at Japanese war cemeteries in Japan and the former colonies of Japan and how these can be a challenge to the hegemony of the Yasukuni Shrine. Another paper looks at Kaura in Australia and here both Japanese and Australians are buried in adjacent cemeteries, so it's looking at sort of the connection between them. Um, the second part looks at literature or books and manga, and they're written by Japanese veterans um, who are working through what the loss of the war means to them, you know, the meaning of defeat, working through trauma, war trauma, and uh, satirising the Japanese military, especially this manga paper is quite interesting. The third part looks at the experiences of people and their narratives or how they commemorate the war. One paper in that is looking at Japanese war brides in New Zealand. Another is the Filipino and US memory of the Bataan Death March and the POW camp O'Donnell um, in the Philippines. And another paper looks at war memory in China. So um, we cover quite a, a wide field there. This one is also, I'm happy to say, openly available. You can find it online. It's with Japan Focus. If you search for, like, uh, the special issue, name Reexamining Asia-Pacific War Memories, hopefully you should find it. Great. Thank you. Now let's focus on the focus of your chapter, co-written with David Morton, The Temple of Ryozen Kanon, erected in 1955 by business magnate Ishikawa Hiroske to commemorate the Japanese war dead of the Asia-Pacific War. Could you provide a little context for this and tell us how the site's developed from then? Yeah, so it's been a really interesting journey, this, this paper and this research. Hopefully we'll uh, publish some more papers on it. Um, I might start with my interest in the place, um, just to give listeners a bit of an idea of what it is. So Diozen Kanon had been a place I was fascinated with from my days as a part-time tour guide when I was in university. It's located in a prime location, really good location, on the side of a mountain in probably what is probably the most popular tourist area in Japan, I'd guess. It's the Kiyomizu Temple area. And it's a massive white 24-metre-tall statue, probably the, the largest statue in Kyoto. And it's a landmark that can be seen from far away. It's on the side of a mountain, huge statue. Despite this, however, it's virtually unknown, not just amongst foreign tourists, but amongst people living in Kyoto too. Um, knowing its connection to World War II, though, from about five years ago, I started taking students there. So I was teaching a class at Ritzmaken on Ritzmaken University on tourism and war. There were so many questions I had about the site that I couldn't figure out, though. So I asked a lot of the monks, and they uh, knew a bit, but they pointed me on, they said, do you know Morton Sensei? Um, and eventually I, I contacted David Morton. He's a professor at Tokushima University, and he's a real expert on Dio Zen Kanon. 
He's been guiding Australians and US POWs and their family members there on behalf of the Japanese government. There's a diplomatic program that they have. And、uh, soon after I contacted him, we decided to work on Girls End together. And、uh, that's how we sort of started that paper. Now, Girls End Kanon was built, as you said, by Ishikawa Hiroske. He's quite an amazing character himself, so I might just talk a little bit about him. He started the Taesan gold mining industries in 1934 and soon became very wealthy. So he was an、uh, entrepreneur. In 1940, he built a statue of、uh, Wakino Kiyomaro, who is said to have preserved the imperial line. So the line connecting one emperor from the next, which is said to go back. Some people say for more than 2,000 years. Said to preserve this by foiling a plot to usurp the line by an influential Buddhist monk in the 8th century. So he built a statue of Wakino Kiyomaro、uh, using copper that he'd personally imported from North America in the late 1930s. At this time, it was extremely costly and took him about a year even just to get it through customs. This statue is one of the few bronze statues that were not melted down during the war, and it still guards the imperial statue from the Kimon, the east northeast corner where bad fortune is said to flow through. So, if you do go to the, the palace, I recommend going and having a look. In short, though, he was a nationalist or at least wanted to project himself as such to the Japanese government at that time. After the war, though, we really see how he could be quite. Flexible, I guess, as an entrepreneur. After the war, he started a new business, again called Taesan, which means imperial.、Um, it initially repaired cars of the US forces in Tokyo and then provided bus services for the occupation personnel and their families, again in Tokyo. This gave him a foot into the world of transportation, of tourism, too. So, after this, his company was the first post war tourist bus lines company in Japan, pretty much, and branched into other industries like banking, driving schools, taxis, real estate, and farming. Dior's M. Camlon can be seen as part of this. In other words, it's partly set up as a sort of a business. He developed plans to build a ropeway actually connecting it with Kiyomiza Temple, which is As I mentioned before, one of the most famous temples in Japan, and made money through the sale of Ihai、uh, Mortuary tablets, which has the name of the, the deceased person on it and has kept it, Dilzen Kanon. However, this place shouldn't be just seen as a capitalist venture. It's also an expression of his post war beliefs on the need to commemorate those who died in the war. In a way that suited the politics and the sentiment of the post war period. As you said, he built the first buildings in 1955 for those who died fighting for the Japanese Empire. This included Koreans, by the way.、Uh, for these, they、uh, hold a list of three million names, or they say they do, and a collection of 600,000 Buddhist EI mortuaries tablets, which I mentioned before. Around 1957 58, Ishikawa received a list the UN ordered Japan to make of POWs that died or went missing in Japanese captivity. It's not clear how he got access actually to this a list. There's only 
three that are known to have been made, and at the moment none of them are accessible. In 1958, he built a stone commemorating the unknown soldiers of World War II. The year later, he built a hall to house this and filing cabinets that have cards that are taken from the list of POWs. These allow um, visitors, or they allowed in the past visitors, foreign visitors to access information on POWs, especially, you know, family members and things. The hall also has a cabinet with sand and national flags. The sand is from war cemeteries across the world. These are mainly from Western Bloc countries of the Cold War, um, which sort of illustrates, at least to me, that Ishikawa and the other heads of Gyozin Kanon were fervent supporters of the US-Japan alliance, which is not an unusual position, actually, for post-war Japanese conservatives, but uh, it reflects his shift in ideology and and thinking from the pre-war, from the wartime. Uh, Ryozen also seems to have been a popular place for US soldiers who are based in the region and for other visitors. Um, if you look into it, you can find some great pictures from the 70s where Kiss actually went there and took photos for uh, posters and albums and stuff too. Um, some pretty weird, weird shots there, but yeah, check it out if you wish. Now, it's fallen popularity, sadly. So since this time, probably reached its peak in, in the 70s, I guess, visitors, both domestic and foreign, have dropped considerably. In the 50s, some memorial events attracted thousands of people um, and were major events for the city. Before corona, though, it attracted less than 50 people or, yeah. So uh, today it's mainly advertises itself as a massive statue with newish sort of attractions like the guardian deity of love. Um, it doesn't focus on its history as a war memorial, so it's sort of put this aside. Meanwhile, though, Yasukuni Shrine has remained popular. So Yasukuni Shrine, as we know, is the shrine that enshrines uh, people that fought for the Japanese Empire and is a symbol of patriotism and the war. Um, also, museums for Kamikaze and the Yamato warship, which is the largest warship built in history, was sunk soon after it was went out. Um, these attract more people than ever. So can we say that Vyozeng's lack of popularity is because World War II has slipped in importance? Probably not. Is it simply, though, that people come to Kyoto to not be reminded of modern wars, but to experience ancient Japan and free themselves, you know, from these anxieties of modernity and everyday life? Or perhaps is it reflective of the attraction of a more simplistic, nationalistic sort of war sites? Uh, I guess I'll have to keep on doing research to answer some of those questions. Yeah, definitely. Um, my theory would be that... I mean, having visited Jiros and Canon a few times before, it is such a complicated site in terms of transnational war memory. It, it's inescapable if you're going there as a Japanese visitor to see different factions being memorialized in the same space in a relatively equal way. But anyway, we'll, we'll come to this a bit later on. You highlight how Ishikawa sought to establish a Buddhist approach to war memorial 
as opposed to Yasukuni Shrine's Shinto status as National War Dead Memorial. How does religion alter the way international conflict is remembered in this case? Mm, yeah, good question. So there's a quite a complex relationship between Yasukuni Shrine and Byozen Kanon, which is an extra layer of history to Byozen Kanon. So as we know, Yasukuni Shrine, it enshrines the souls of those who fought for the Japanese Empire and was a mouthpiece for the state to glorify these war dead people that died for the nation or the emperor. The precursor to Yasukuni Shrine, though, is actually right next door to Gyozen Kanon. Today it's Kokoku Shrine, which is a shrine for protecting the nation, if you translate the Japanese. Formerly, though, it was called Shokonsha, and this was built to enshrine those who were buried nearby, who fought for the imperial loyalists against the forces of the Tokugawa shogunate. So the Tokugawa shogunate, this is the government that ruled Japan for the 250-odd years before the modern period. Wars in Kyoto actually brought the end of that period, the Bakumatsu Wars or Boshin Wars. Much of the civil wars occurred in Kyoto, especially in Toba Fushimi, the Battle of Toba Fushimi in the south of Kyoto in 1858. And anyway, so a lot of these people were buried close by and they built this shrine for them. In 1869, after the capital was moved from Kyoto to Tokyo, a Tokyo Shokonsha was built based on the one in Kyoto. This eventually evolved into Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo, while Kyoto's became the prefectural Gokoku Shrine from the 1930s or so. Um, so there's this really complex relationship between them, actually. After the war, the occupation worked to shut down state Shinto because of its connection to militarism. They tried to, uh, they severed state funding and they started to investigate Yasukuni Shrine and the Gokoku Shrines with the idea of maybe closing them as well. This didn't happen eventually, but there were also a lot of Japanese who were critical of the state Shinto and, you know, its connections again to justifying the death of so many young people. During this time, there was a stop put on enshrinements at Yasukuni because during the occupation. In other words, millions had died, but there were few legitimate public places to memorialise them. So Ishikawa stepped in to fill this gap at this time for public commemoration with Gyozen Kanon. Due to the controversy of state Shinto and the potential he would be criticised for lacking patriotism if it was seen as like usurping Yasukuni's role, um, the connections with Yasukuni were never really made official. However, Ishikawa was quoted as saying that he consciously built a Buddhist site rather than a Shinto shrine like Yasukuni or Kokoku Shrine. So Kokoku Shrine, just to, just to mention, I should mention that um, it's the prefectural shrines under Yasukuni Shrine. Rather than building a Shinto shrine like Yasukuni Shrine, he wanted to build a Buddhist site to avoid American opposition and interference. So it was part of why he did this. But it's not as simple as this, though. This is not really a sudden appropriation of Yasukuni and presentation of it in Buddhist clothing. 
There were, no doubt, many who wanted a major Buddhist site of memorialization in Kyoto, in Japan. Most funeral services in Japan, as we may, as the listeners may know, are Buddhist, and Shinto enshrinement of war dead only became nationally accepted from the probably around the early 20th century. So Buddhist temples also, they continued to play a role even during the war. So in front of Gyozen, there's a pagoda that was built in 1908 that actually commemorated local war dead from the Russo-Japanese War, and this is a Buddhist uh, site too. Even more surprisingly, in a way, Gyozen Kanon's building housing these memorial tablets was actually an unfinished Buddhist ossuary, so where they were going to uh, burn, you know, cremate soldiers that was constructed by the soldiers of the Kyoto-based 16th Division of the Imperial Army. So Gyozen Kanon was actually built onto this major site of Buddhist memorialization in Kyoto. As I might have mentioned, the temple is crowned by this huge statue, and this statue is of Kanon, who's the Bodhisattva of Benevolence and Mercy. It's a Buddhist Bodhisattva. Uh, Kanon has a long history of popular faith in Japan that goes back more than a 1,000 years. It's the focus of faith at nearby Kiyomizu Temple, for example, which is likely one reason it was built there. During the war, though, Kanon came to be seen as a protector of soldiers. So a lot of people had these called bullet-dodging kannon, tamayoki kannon, which were small statues, small miniature statues, um, which were meant to protect them. It also, they drew on the roots of kannon as a part of continental Asian religion to simultaneously memorialise those fighting for the Japanese empire and the enemy in China. So there was a, a famous kannon built in Shizuoka Prefecture in 1940, perhaps I'll talk about a bit later. The first giant kannon statue, which was 40 metres tall, huge things, it's like a building, was built in 1936, and this is Takasaki Kannon in Guma Prefecture. It was built to memorialise a visit by the emperor and for deceased soldiers from the local army base. After the war, more massive statues of Kannon were built for war memorialization and peace across Japan. Some of them reached 100 metres and are falling apart, actually, likely to fall into the sea, um, which is a terrible fate for these things. But Gyozen Kannon was one of the earliest of these and thereby drew on ideas of Kannon that was, uh, you know, looking over soldiers of not just of Japan but of the East in general. So to return to your question, the Buddhist nature of Gyozen provided an acceptable religious space for memorialize, to memorialise war dead in the post-war period. Kyoto was perhaps a logical location here too because it's seen as the city of Buddhism in Japan. This world religion also helped enable it to transform into a site of international memorialization too. Um, at the same time, it also took with it this wartime baggage, as symbolised by the canon, in which Imperial Japan saw itself as fighting for the freedom of Asia from Western imperialism and for Pan-Asian affinity. 
There's also evidence of this in the hall for the unknown soldier, which is primarily for enemy dead, but there's no soil or flag here for the South Korean or for mainland Chinese. So is it drastically different, though, to Yasukuni? The suppression of state Shinto, of course, was very important here um, for the development of Gyozen Kanon. However, it's not very different from Yasukuni in many important ways. Like, it's still designed foremost as a place for people to come and mourn lost loved ones, right? Um, also, it's similar in that Yasukuni and other memorial sites of the imperial period memorialise those of the Japanese empire. Um, Gyozen Kanon, on the other hand, really memorialises war dead of the Western Bloc or the newer um, international part of it, the Memorial Hall, memorialises war dead of the Western Bloc of the Cold War, especially, you know, those of the US empire and its allies. So in some ways there's some similarities. Yeah, no, fascinating. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, when an earlier episode where I discussed modern Shinto uh, with Dana Misalis, we talked about how there was a sort of rift between Buddhism and Shinto at the start of the Japanese Empire, the early, you know, the start of the Meiji era, where Buddhism was seen as a foreign influence and they separated that from Shinto. And how at the ends of the war, in the midst uh, of the end of the Japanese Empire, this Buddhism returns as a way of remembering the nation's dead. It's a really fascinating shift back, I suppose. So you touched on Gokoku Shrines, prefectural branches of Yasukuni in Tokyo, including the nearby Kyoto Gokoku Shrine, which, in contrast to Rosen Kanon, does nothing to remember non-Japanese participants in the Asia-Pacific War. You mentioned Ishikawa was looking to sustain the ideology of Yasukuni, but how do you explain this drastically different approach to War Memorial? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I don't think that there's such... I think it's that history as I explained, explains, you know, the occupation, it's more difficult to have a Shinto shrine. Um, also, I think that his personal belief, he seems to have been quite a strong Buddhist, at least after the war. Um, there's a lot of quotations about that. It's difficult to know if it's him trying to show that Yozen Kanon is not just another capitalist venture but is actually based on you know deep faith or not but it seems i think to have also emerged from his own religious beliefs um yeah it's uh it's very interesting how that that's that there is that transformation i think Gyozen Kanon is a good uh symbol of that really yeah, so uh, personally I'm interested in understanding the people who visit these sites, as well as those managing them. I know your article doesn't seek to address this in particular, but during your visits, have you noticed any patterns amongst visitors? That's a good question. Uh, so thinking about visitors, it's very sort of difficult to gauge what sort of visitors, just because there's not very many. There are very few. Before the pandemic, I went there with students and I asked the students to interview people. We took some surveys of what sort of people were visiting, and that was a mix. Some of them were foreign tourists, were attracted by the, you know, the huge statue. Uh, a lot of Japanese visitors, of course, too, attracted by this huge statue. So there's a lot of visitors that just happen upon the place. Um, also, in front of the... There's a large wall 
And on the wall, it says something like, you know, there's a thing here for the unknown soldiers in English. So this attracts a lot of people as well because, as we know, there's not a lot of uh, English written around sometimes around temples in Kyoto. So there are a lot of people that do come into there just, you know, curious about what is this, what is this place that's connected, to, obviously connected to war. Uh, a few also Japanese students and student groups go there for heiwa gakushu or um, shugakuryoko, these peace tourism or learning. It's a, it's a part of the education system for some schools. They travel to different places to learn about peace and to learn about Japan's history um, and the war through visiting different sites. So there's not a lot of them that come to Kyoto. Most of them go to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Okinawa. But there are some that have come through Kyoto and they go to Ryozen Kanon. Um, so there's some groups like this. And there's also some that go there for the groups that go there for like Zen meditation practice, these student groups again. Um, so the temple has sort of tried to uh, get some money, I guess, some funding, get some visitors coming through with other attractions like Zen meditation programs. There aren't, as I mentioned, though, many visitors today, sadly. Um, this is reflected in the buildings itself, which are sort of falling apart. There's been typhoons that have just, you know, damaged some of the buildings and they've been gradually improved, but there's some parts of the building that look like they could be in danger of collapsing. So if you do come to Kyoto, I do highly recommend visiting it. It's one place that even during the peak of tourism, you're going to be able to go there and you will be able to enjoy the temple pretty much by yourself. It's also got great sakura, great cherry trees, so it's worth visiting in April too. Yeah. Great. I'm intrigued that the Dozen Canon Association you referred to in the new article changed the reference to the war from the nationalistic Greater East Asian War to the Great War of Shoah, referring to the time period it happened in. This was to avoid putting off new customers. Does this reflect a desire for separation between war and memorial and nationalism? So I think that the shift in the terminology here probably reflects, first of all, generational change. So it happened around the early 1960s, which was a time in which people were very critical of the World War II, but also um, of... Japan's militarism and potential uh, future um, involvement in wars and critical of the idea even that World War II, the Asia-Pacific War, was fought for the freedom of Asia. Japan fought it for freedom of Asia from Western imperialism. Ishikawa himself also died in 1965 around this time, so it might reflect a shift in leadership. They were struggling to find new clients at this time. As I said, there was a gradual decrease in visitors. So it may also reflect, you know, they're trying to avoid putting people off through using outdated terms. Um, it's sort of questionable, though, whether today um, which term would attract more people. If they wanted to attract nationalists, they probably could have 
use those earlier those terms anyhow I'll leave that aside um, but it does show that dual Zen does not seem to have tried to actively attract nationalists and the right wing through historical revisionism it could have, of course done this because right next door you've got kokoku shrine which is a symbol as attracts nationalist types and just in front of Gokoku Shrine, you've got the Dyozen Bakumatsu Museum, which is um, commemorates the battles that were held in Kyoto and throughout Japan, this, this civil war period in the 1850s and 1860s. These are both sides of patriotism, really. So <clears throat> they could have taken that route. However, what they did instead was try to avoid controversy, I think, while attracting, trying to attract money through shifting to being a normal temple that could attract tourists um, interested in coming, you know, to this ancient capital, the home of tranquility and Buddhism, and see this massive statue. Yeah. I guess what I find so fascinating about this site is it really reflects how memorialization changes over time especially here in the UK, the most common example of memorialization would be the 11th of November, remembering the end of the world wars. And the monumentality of it all tries to say, this is how it's always been, this is how we've always done it, this is what we always do. And yet there is so much change going on as you look back through the decades. And yeah, it goes in Canon, I think is a perfect example of, of, of that change. Well, there's the concern, I have the concern that yours in Canon might disappear in five Ten years. Really, that soon. If they continue to get few visitors, and the temple continues to fall apart, especially with you know Japan has a lot of typhoons, um, and they can't upkeep the place, then who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. So I recommend you know if you haven't been there, visit visit it while it lasts, because we can't assume that it's going to be there forever. Yeah. And yeah, Japan is, is full of wartime memorials, which sadly have not been looked after and uh, will just crumble away very soon. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them statues of Canon, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly, Yosin Canon is complex as a war memorial, commemorating many different nationalities from the Asia Pacific War, albeit in a compartmentalized way. Do you think there is an obligation of wartime aggressors to memorialize opposing soldiers and other victims? And if so, do you think Dozen Canon is a good example of how to do this? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. As a concept, the idea of commemorating war dead, enemy war dead, could be a great thing. However, it comes with a lot of complications, I think. Japan actually has a long tradition of commemorating enemy dead. Partly from a lot of this is actually from Buddhism and Shinto, you know, religious views of the world. For example, there's the idea of uh, Goryo Shin, Shinko, which is a uh, fear of vengeful spirits. So people that die in terrible ways and their spirit may came, come back to haunt that place. There's also the uh, ritual Dai Segaki Air, which is translated as the, the great right to appease hungry ghosts. So these are ghosts, people that die in war and they come back, I guess, like a zombie or something. <laughs> um, to put it in easily understandable terms. 
Um, and there's also uh, this idea of tekimikata kuyo, which is memorializing both the enemy and the ally. So this has Buddhist roots and you find it in other places. In Kyoto too, such as Mimizuka, which is, as I said, another place that I've researched about and you have as well. So this sounds like a terrific thing, right? Like, um, you know, to memorialize the enemy. However, for example, with Mimizuka, was built into the 1590s, I think, was built as a symbol of, you know, Toyotomi Hiyoshi's power. He went and invaded forces under him, went and invaded Korea with a plan of taking over Korea and China. Okay. Um, So this mound, Mimizuka, is a big mound with all of the remains of these people buried there. Um, It's just as much a symbol of his power in killing all of these people as it was about respectfully memorialising them. So a site like this can be used in different ways. So a similar thing, I think, a similar problem can be found at another site in Japan. It's called Koa Kanon. It's a statue and temple in Shizuoka Prefecture. It was built by Matsui Iwane, who was the commander of the Japanese army forces that invaded China in 1937. He's seen as the person responsible for the Nanjing Massacre, for example. So after he returned to Japan, after the incident in Nanjing, um, he built this statue in 1940 to memorialise both Japanese and Chinese war dead. However, it was a way to to justify Japan's invasion and war with China as one of benevolence, so protecting China um, uh, and freeing it from Western imperialism. So I think the lesson here is that such memorials, perhaps they need to be built in cooperation with both sides of a conflict. I can't just be built by Japanese um, or by just one side. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, one example I came across of memorializing the enemy, which I found fascinating, was uh, it's a a small graveyard in Matsuyama on western Shikoku, uh, which was made for the Russians who died fighting the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. Um, And what really stood out for me about that site was how unlike it was in Canon where the people are sort of compartmentalized a bit um, so you have the westerners have their memorial hall and the Japanese soldiers have their own little section um, in this graveyard they're all mixed so you have these busts of bearded Russian men amongst the Japanese grave family gravestones as well and uh, it shows a bit more about life after the war, about the people who stayed on in Shikoku after being released as prisoners of war, and it helps to kind of look historically beyond just the war and the conflict and the fighting itself, but also the social impact uh, beyond that. Mm, interesting, interesting. Actually, there's a couple of papers. So in this the special that we just put out with Japan Review, uh, Japan Focus, um, one the one on Kara, which I mentioned, and another by Colin Rosnack, which is on these Japanese graves throughout Japan, war cemeteries throughout Japan and in the Japanese Empire. And, yeah, I think, um, like you say there, they can be much more complex and interesting sites. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Daniel. Uh, before we finish the episode, can you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Um, 
So I'm working on two major research projects at the moment. One is on heritage of post of POW-related sites in Japan. That includes Dozenkanon and in Australia, such as Kaura and other places, and in Southeast Asia, in um, Thailand in particular. That's one project. Um, and then another is on Kyoto, exploring the modern development of the tourist image of the city. And beyond this sort of image to look at its modernization, its the imperialism in the city, war, discrimination, diversity, I guess the underbelly that's not often seen in the tourist image of, of Kyoto. So I'm working on those two projects um, at the moment. Also, the isolation of COVID prompted me to work with others on another project, which I'm leading. It's a abridged translation of the illustrated guidebook, Miyako Meishuzue, maybe... Some of our listeners have heard of this, but it's an Edo period classic that it's like a guidebook that introduces Kyoto's famous sites in really well-researched text and beautiful illustrations. So hopefully this translation can be published in the not-so-distant future and um, I should have some other work out with Kyoto in the next couple of years too. Hmm. Great. We'll keep an eye out for all of that. Thank you for joining me today, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You can find a link to Daniel's research profile in the description below. After 85 episodes, Beyond Japan will be drawing to a close next month, so that I may give my full attention to my PhD. I would like to thank all the guests who have shared their research with us, and to you, the listeners, who have supported this exciting new medium for sharing academia with the wider world. Please do check out other events by the Sainsbury Institute on their website, sainsbury-institute.org. For our next and final episode, I'll be rejoined by Eka Rotz, Associate Professor of Japan Studies at the University of Oslo to discuss the agency of animals in influencing human society and cultures through the mighty whale in coastal communities of East Asia. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>